We turn to the, back to the Gospel of John. If you have been with us, you know that we are in a verse-by-verse study of this Gospel, this very important Gospel, uh, this Gospel that uh, John makes it very clear. His intention in writing it is so that when you have read it, you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will thus have life in His name. That is the intent. That's why so many people are told to read the book of John. If you want to know about Christ, take the book of John and start reading it. If you are a seeker, if you're one who wants to know more about who Jesus is, John is a great book to go to because there is so much in this gospel about Christ, his deity, his humanity, uh, his message and the gospel. The verses we're looking at are at the very end of chapter 2. We saved them for a sermon by themselves. Uh, we left off there at the end of chapter 2 with verses 23 through 25. And you saw that uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Passover, and many have seen his signs, it says in these verses, and many believed in his name. But then it goes on to say in the very next verse, but... Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. To that many who believed, Jesus, it says, was not entrusting himself to them. To sum it up, he had no faith in their faith. He had no faith in their faith. Pastor Richard Caldwell, speaking about the state of the church today, said this, He says, we live in a day and time when the measuring stick of where the success of a church is, it's measured by numerical growth and size. If you want to have a successful church, you measure it by the growth of the church and the size of the church. Never mind, he says, if the church is holy or not. Just do whatever it takes to attract larger crowds. In other words, fill the room. Just fill the room. Press people to make a decision for Christ. And when they make that decision, he says, no one asks if that decision is genuine or not. He says, he says over the years, thus, thus he says, over the years, the evangelical church has baptized and added to the visible church a lot of unbelievers. Countless people who are not regenerate. He says, against that backdrop comes these words about Jesus, the Lord of the church, who encounters people who want to associate with him, who want to be added to the number that are following him, and yet he does not entrust himself to them. It says they believed, but Jesus would not entrust himself they wanted him to entrust himself to them, but they, he would not. It's very interesting. In our new members class, this is the first, one of the first things we teach to people inquiring about what we believe at Grace Church, this subject. What is true saving faith? We spend a, a, a little bit of time on this, path, on this because we want people to know what it means to truly believe in Christ because of the very reason he says right here. Jesus, we can't see in everybody's heart, but Jesus can. We just want people to understand 
what true saving faith is because these verses indicate to us there is a belief that does not save. There is a faith that does not save. We don't want just decisions for Christ. We want conversions. Do you understand? That is a big difference. A decision, but a conversion is different. Conversion is regeneration. A conversion is when there's a work that takes place in the heart of the repentant sinner. Here we are at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2. He's just gotten started. The wedding at Cana, cleansing the temple at Passover time. And now we're here. You're beginning your ministry. Good time to add on. Good time to build it up in terms of numbers. And what do we see Jesus do? Uh, He turns down their verbal profession of faith. There's a faith that that Jesus does not believe in, and that's what's being manifested here. You see, in these verses, the word uh, believe in verse 23 and the word entrust in verse 24 are the same Greek word. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. He saw something in their faith. He saw a deficiency in the faith that they were expressing And therefore, he would not entrust himself to them. John MacArthur, he's the one that said those words I said earlier, Jesus did not have faith in their faith. Notice in verse 23, Jesus is still in Jerusalem at the Passover. This is the first of the three Passovers you read about in the book of John, meaning his three-year ministry. Passover was every year. He's still in past, he's still in Jerusalem, and they were observing his signs. They were believing because of the signs that he was doing. They were observing the signs. They saw these miracles that he was doing. They believed on some level, but it was not saving faith. There was an enthusiasm for the spectacular. There was a belief in the spectacular in these opening days of ministry. And Jesus faces this a couple other times. Let me just show you one example. Turn in John chapter 6. Hold your hand there in John chapter 2 and go to John chapter 6. It says in verse 2 of John 6, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So they're seeing the signs and a large crowd is following him. He has to, in fact, retreat a couple of times just to get away from the crowds. In fact, go down to verse 15. The crowds were so enamored with his power that they wanted to come and take him by force. Verse 15 says, and make him king. So then he withdraws because he's not the kind of king they think he is. The crowds were trying to find him. The next day they find him, not because they're attracted to him for salvation. And this is so important. They're not attracted to him for salvation. They're not attracted to him for repentance. And they're not attracted to him for belief for salvation. They are attracted to him because of miracles. This is miracle faith. 
This, in fact, we're going to see in just a moment, is free food faith. Verse 26, and Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He's just fed the 5,000 prior to this verse. And then he, from that opportunity, he goes into this bread of life sermon. And each part of this sermon gets more and more offensive and controversial as he preaches the sermon. And this is how he sort of sorts out the true from the false. Verse 33, for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Then notice he gets into some crucifixion language. He gets into some uh, language about uh, uh, eating his blood, eating his body and drinking his blood. He says, uh, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'm going to give my flesh. Shocking statement. Sounds like cannibalism. But it's a figure of speech to preview the bread. He will, he will li- the, excuse me, the, the bread of life that he is, he will be the sacrifice on the cross. And he means to be shocking because he wants to drive away those who have free food faith. Verse 60, therefore many of his disciples when they heard this said, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? And Jesus said, this, said to them, this causes you to stumble? Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. He was driving away those who were there for the adrenaline rush of a miracle, who wanted free food. John Piper says, we don't need adrenaline faith, we need coronary faith. We need faith from the heart. Verse 67, so, so Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter says, where are we going to go? Who else has the words of eternal life? So this is miracle faith. This is a shallow and superficial faith. This is not saving faith. That is what the flesh wants. The flesh wants a sign. And Jesus says that is not the kind of faith that Jesus believes in. And so Jesus basically chases them away, those who were just attracted to his power, those who made an outward profession, were his disciples outwardly, but had no regeneration of the heart. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. This is familiar. I've taken you here many times before, but just to show you how this Jesus warns about this kind of superficial faith in a couple other places. In Matthew chapter 7, he has just finished up the Sermon on the Mount. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Because the gate is narrow. It's not a wide gate. The, the false teachers, anybody come, no matter what, what you believe, anybody, everybody come. No, this is the narrow gate. But then he warns in verse 21, not everyone, this is 721 of Matthew, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look at all the things these people did. We did them all in your name. We preached, there was exorcism. These were deeds that were done in your name. Then verse 23 says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Understand something, folks. They did not lose their salvation. They never had it. Understand that. They did not lose salvation. They never had salvation. I never knew you. You say you knew me, but I say I never knew you. You see somebody in the church for a long time doing all kinds of ministry and all kinds of things. The question is, do they really know Christ? Do they really know him? Because you can do a lot of things and not know Christ. Talk to a guy recently who was a deacon in his church for years, years. Now he's gotten into some kind of issues and going on, but then he told me, I asked him if he, if he died, would he go to heaven? He said, nobody's ever asked me that question, but no, I know I wouldn't go to heaven. Here he is, an older man, approaching the 70s, been a deacon in his church almost his whole life, held on to that position. He was proud of that position. He was proud of that role in the church. He would just all day long sing his praises about having that kind of authority in his church. But when asked if he was going to go to heaven when he died, he said, no, I don't think so. I'm almost sure I'm not. Turn to 1 John 2.18. 1 John 2.18. Yeah, I think a lot of times people want to come to Christ because they want to have a place of authority. They want to roll. They want to roll. And... Uh, they don't know Christ, but they want a role in his church. And the church is a place where they can find a role. That's just feeding the flesh. Just feeding the flesh. 1 John 1, excuse me, 1 John 2. Children, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Notice verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. People have departed. People have departed, but they were never of us. If they had been, they would have continued to be with us. It becomes plain. It becomes plain as time goes along, whether they're really of us or not. You may not know it at the beginning, but it becomes more plain as time goes on. 
and leaving gives evidence of the fact that they never were of us. Folks, they did not lose their salvation. They never had it. In fact, you go to the internet nowadays and we have all these ex-evangelicals, all these ex-evangelicals that say, I just left the church. I got so disgruntled with the church. I got disgruntled with Christianity. I don't like Christianity anymore. All the abuses of Christianity, da-da-da-da-da-da, all of this stuff. Let me just tell you, my friends, people, when people leave and stay away, it's not because they've lost their salvation, they never had their salvation. Understand that. Because, because Christians persevere. You know why Christians persevere? Because Christians are preserved until the final day. I don't hold on to this. I would lose this. He holds on to me. He holds on to you. If you truly belong to him. We all stray. We all stray. But we come back. I love, I love what MacArthur says in his commentary on First John, at the end of First John, when Peter has betrayed the Lord and denied Christ, and the Lord comes back and says, do you love me three times? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than this fishing business that you've gotten back yourself, back attached to you? Do you love me more? Three times he asks him, to which Peter says, I don't show it too good, God, but I do love you. In spite of my track record, I do love you. You see, that's the point. Do you love him? It didn't always look pretty, God, but I love you. The true Christian loves Christ, is captured by his love and that love. You know why you love Christ? Because he first set his love on you. That's the reason. That's the reason you love him. And that love, that love holds you. That love saves you. That love redeems you. That love puts you into the body of Christ. And you love him because he loves you. It's not you trying to muster up some love for God. That's not what we're talking about. You'll never get any. It's what he initiates in you, in your heart. It becomes, back to 1 John 2, it becomes plain. Do you understand? It becomes plain at some point. I don't know who these people are. You don't. I can't, I can't look into the heart of every person. But it becomes plain. And we've seen that happen, haven't we? But it's not because they lost their salvation or that they, by some decision, said, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. No, they never were. They never were. But Christ preserves those who belong to him until the final day. Go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. This is a okay. This is going to be a little lengthy, but stay with me. This is a little, little uh, it was a parable that Jesus told. This is the parable of the tares and the wheat. Okay, the parable of the tares and the wheat, Matthew thirteen. Jesus gives warnings about what it's going to be like. 
Jesus presents this parable saying in verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares. Darnell, tares. Tares among the wheat and went away. Darnell looks like wheat, by the way. It's very hard to tell it apart from wheat, especially in the early stages of growing. It looks just like wheat. Verse uh, 26, but when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident. As the wheat began to, as time goes on, the wheat becomes uh, matured. The tares become evident. Then it starts to show. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, do you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather up those tares? No, but he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them and allow both to grow together until the harvest, the judgment. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up and gather the wheat into my barn. Over time, it becomes plain. Go down to verse 36. He leaves the, cl- the crowds, goes into the house. The disciples said, explain that tares in the field parable. He left the, cr- uh, excuse me, verse 37. He said, the one who sows the seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And the good seed, these are the, uh, excuse me, as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather up out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and all those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. See, it's the work of the enemy and and Christ has ordained this and will happen that the enemy is going to plant tares among us. He's going to do that among the Among this wheat, he sows weeds. Weeds among the wheat, in the midst of the wheat. In the midst of the wheat, Darnell. And like I said, in the early stages, looks just alike. Robertson says, the enemy deliberately sowed Darnell in the midst of the wheat, and it's hard to weed out. (laughs) Until the lifestyle, maybe, until the bent, maybe, becomes evident. Because you can't see the heart. You can't see the heart. It can be hard to tell the difference sometimes. And sometimes you don't know until they leave. Until they leave. They might be fine while they're growing up in your house. But the minute they get out the door, they don't want anything in order to do with it. They might do fine when they're in certain environments, but get into another environment, you go on different ways. They went out not because they were of us. They went out to manifest that they were not of us. 
It was the leaving. Go back to the text. Go back to the text. The text. You say, what text? John 2. Sorry about that. John chapter 2. Let me just say this. So, you, so, so Rod, you're saying miracle faith, okay? That's what Jesus is going after here, the, the uh, excitement of signs and wonder faith, you know, that kind of faith. That's, what, that's, what, that's the problem here. Uh, weren't the signs important? Didn't the signs matter? I mean, weren't the signs an issue? Weren't, didn't Jesus say some positive things about his signs? And yes, he did. It almost sounds like I'm contradicting that by what I just said on this, because he does say some very positive things about the signs. Listen to this. You don't have to turn to these, but they're all in John. John 10, 37. If I do the works of my Father, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe in me. John 12, 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. So you see, you have these other examples. Signs were meant to show people and give evidence to who he was. Uh, John 14, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Other words, if you don't believe that, then believe the works themselves. Just believe. You see these amazing works that only God can do. Then John 15, 24, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. And you're in John 2, right? Look down at John 3 and look at Nicodemus in verse 2. He says the very reason that he came, or one of the main reasons he comes up to Jesus is because he says, Rabbi, we know, this is verse 2, Rabbi of chapter 3, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Hey, that sounds like signs are really necessary and important in the ministry of Christ. And they were. But there's something about the flesh that just loves the signs and not the Savior. They did not see the signs as reason to trust in the Savior. They had belief on some level, but they, was a, there was a defect in their faith and Christ could see that. Even in the Old Testament, you think about it. You think about the amazing miracles that took place. The opening of the Red Sea. The pillar of fire by night. Manna on the ground in the morning. Victory over enemies along the way. You think about all of those miracles and what's the final verdict? Unbelief. And so, there is a decision that men can make that does not result in salvation. That is what we need to be aware of. People can make decisions, but not conversion. The signs pointed to who Jesus was, pointed to his teaching. His teaching was about repentance. His teaching was about, his, his teaching was about uh, of, uh, of sin. His teaching was about salvation. His teaching was about trusting in me the Lord Jesus Christ. I told you the purpose of the book of John was so that we might believe. Well, John wants you to know by inserting a passage like this in John 2, he wants you to know that yes, this book has got belief all over it. Believe is the message of the book in so many passages. He said, I just want you to know there is a belief that is not, does not result in regeneration. It's not genu- genuine. 
So that's miracle belief. Go down to verse 23. Let's look at these real quick, these verses real, real fast here. Verse 23, when he came to Jerusalem uh, during the feast, many believed in his name. They saw the miracles, encouraging. God's work is done. Hey, they believed. Hey, there are a lot of people that would have signed them up right there. You're maybe a member of the church and probably put them in some kind of leadership position because they said they believed. just because they said they believed. The passage warns us that belief of the crowds was just a veneer, though. That's what he's saying. No content, nothing real about it. Jesus, on his part, verse 24, was not entrusting himself to them. No matter how excited they were, no matter uh, how thrilled they were with what he was doing and how... um, how much they just wanted to be around him, their profession could not be relied on. That he knew that this was just going to be a foundation built on sand, and the first time a storm came, they were gone. He knows. He knows what real faith looks like, and real faith does not run. They had enthusiasm for the spectacular. Oh, look at that. Look at that. A miracle. A miracle. It wasn't, it wasn't going to be the take up your cross and follow me faith. It wasn't that. Therefore, Jesus puts no confidence in it. It happens today, doesn't it? There are some churches people go to because there are going to be miracles there. And if you stop those miracles, guess what? They don't go there anymore. You stop the excitement, you stop the laughing frenzies that take place in those places, you stop all of that and they don't go there anymore. That's miracle sign faith. It's dependent on that. The spectacular. I used to have friends that would travel for miles to some convention center somewhere to see something spectacular that God was going to do. Well, that's not the kind of faith Jesus believes in because it has nothing to do with sin. It has nothing to do with repentance or forgiveness or or salvation or regeneration or submission to Christ. None of that. Verse 25, for he knew all men, end of verse 24, for he knew all men and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus is different than we are. He can see. He is omniscient. He knows. He can see into the heart of every person. He can see into your heart right now. He knows you're standing before him right now. I don't. No one else does, truly. No. But he knows. You know, here's a test we, we would use with each other. We use this with each other. We would want to know, has been there been a verbal profession made? And this is legitimate for Romans 10, 9. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have we heard that? That's a test. It's a verbal test. Has someone made that profession verbally? 
I mean, that's how we would, one way we would know. The second way we would know is, is there evidence in the lifestyle? Is any, has there been any change since that person made that profession? Was that profession a real profession? Was it in from the heart, as Romans 10 says, to where it affected the lifestyle in any way? 1 John 3.10 says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So there's some evidences John gives us in 1 John. uh, Practicing righteousness, not perfectly, but desiring to practice righteousness and loving his brother. Those are things I would say would be evidences that I can see and you can see and we can see this in each other. But we don't, we're not Jesus. We can't really know. We, 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 he can see beyond our two tests. See, if God is at work in your life, there will be evidence. There will be a change. If you're transformed and God is living inside of you, then people should be able to see that. And it should have an effect on your relationship with people and, and with God and uh, so, so that's test of faith that we have, but Jesus didn't need any of that. He didn't need any of that. He was not limited. He, he didn't need those two tests. He could look right into your heart and see. Right into your heart and tell whether you're genuine or real or just a sham. Just a sham. He knew all men. That's the end of verse 25. He knew all men. He did not need anyone to tell him concerning anything concerning man. He had perfect divine knowledge. Psalm 33, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth who fashions the hearts of them all. He understands all their works. You cannot hide from God. He's all-knowing. That is good news And that is bad news, that he is all-knowing. I'm glad he knows the future. I'm glad he knows my frame. I'm glad he knows my weaknesses and still loves me. I'm glad for a lot of things God knows. But it's bad news for the unbeliever because he knows everything. He knows everything. It's easy to come to church. It's easy to nod and smile and carry a Bible and and fit into the Christianized culture of our world and our country and say the right things. But, and, and you can repent, and you know what? You can fake repentance and you can refake salvation. Judas did it for three years. Now, Jesus knew, but the others did not. When he said, Somebody's going to betray me, when he's at that table and said, Somebody's going to betray me, they all thought it was them, themselves. But there are some other kinds of faith that. The Bible talks about besides miracle faith. Miracle faith is not so much a problem in a church like ours because we don't really emphasize the sign gifts. We're kind of hold to a more cessationist view of those things. But there are some others. Turn to James. Let me show you some other kinds of faith that fit into the John 2 category. These are some other kinds of faith that fit into what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 2. In James 1, verse 22, let's start with that. James 1, verse 22. 
We'll call this, this intellectual faith, intellectual. It's just all up in your head. Verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. A hearer. You're hearing something. A hearer is like somebody that audits a course. I'm going to just sit and listen. I'm not going to take any of the exams. I'm just going to sit and listen. I'm not going to do any of the homework. I'm just going to sit and listen. I'm going to do nothing with it. I'm going to listen to it here and go home and do nothing with it. That's the hearer. Just audits the class. Quite, just quite, con- quite content assuming church-going fits and satisfies God's standard and what God wants from me. I can just go into the world and live how I want. I can hear it. I was there. I heard the sermon, and I, can, I listened to it online. I, did, I listened. But you'd be categorized as an a auditor, auditing the class. You're a hearer only if you don't do anything with it. If it has absolutely no effect on you. And uh, James attacks that intellectual faith in the next chapter. Verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, verse 14, if someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? The Greek construction of that statement, the last phrase of that statement implies a response. And the response, the only response is no. It doesn't save him. A faith that does not bring forth any kind of works is not a faith that saves. In fact, he calls it a dead faith. But he says something even worse in verse 19, James 2, 19. You believe that God is one? Wow, that is a great theological statement. You believe that God is one. That is the Shema. That is in Deuteronomy. The Jews believe that God is one. They live in a culture that was polytheistic. They stood out because they only believed in one God. You do well to say there's only one God. You're a theological beacon because you have that proof. Good job. That's good doctrine. That's good theology. But it's just a fact to you. It's it's no love and devotion to Christ. And by the way, the demons believe the same thing. See that? And they shudder. You don't even shudder. Their their hair stands on end because of that fact. You just nod, but don't follow up. You just nod in agreement, but there's no following up of obedience of any kind. The demons have right doctrine, and they don't do anything with their doctrine, with this doctrine either, your faith is no better than theirs. You just basically have demon faith. That's all. Just believe facts. Intellectual. Folks, there are people that love to argue. Love to argue. This feeds the flesh. There are some people that come to Christianity just so they can argue, argue facts and facts and facts as if arguing facts is going to get them any closer to God. They don't argue to get closer to God. They don't argue to get answers. They just like to argue. It stimulates the intellect. 
They just want to keep talking and talking and talking and talking and talking ad nauseum. They just want to keep on and get nowhere and wrangle over things that do not matter. I'm all for answering a legitimate question, a sincere question, but keep in mind, as I told our men's study this past week, men, all men on the planet are suppressors of the truth. Understand that. Everybody suppresses the truth, meaning they know it, they just suppress it. And they're not honest in their questioning. They want more reason to keep suppressing. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, this is in James still, 2.20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And here's a second one. I don't know if I'll get much further than this, but go to the second one. Go to Matthew 13 again. I'm sorry, did we go to Matthew 13 earlier? I think so. Matthew 13 again. Back to Matthew chapter 13. You see this in verse 20. This is the parable of the sower. Jesus has given that parable. In verse 20, he's explaining it. He says, the one on whom the seed was sown. You have, you have a sower, you have seed. You have sower who's gone out to sow seed. The parable says the sower is the one who is taking the word of God and, and the seed is the word of God and he's throwing it on different heart conditions. That All the soils represent heart conditions, okay? That's what we're talking about here. He says the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Look, notice, the, the gospel, he hears the gospel. It's, boy, it's great. It's new to me. It's something new and exciting. It's excitement. And it lands on this rocky soil, though. That's the problem. It's like a bedrock. It's like you've got some soil, and beneath it, there's this bedrock that you can't see from the surface. But that bedrock is enough to keep roots from going down. That's the rocky soil. It's not a bunch of rocks in the soil. It's a bedrock beneath a little bit of soil. So it's very shallow, very shallow. But he immediately receives it with joy. No firm roots, but notice what? He falls away. Yet verse 21 says, he has no firm root in himself, but notice this is the kind of faith that, that uh, Jesus is talking about. It's called temporary faith. Temporary faith. Faith that is temporary gets excited gets excited, but when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately falls away. Has this initial enthusiasm, outward circumstances change though? You change the circumstances and what happens, their faith changes as well. And so many people have a dramatic, a dramatic profession of faith. And, and the minute some dramatic or painful moment comes along, as soon as that happens, or they get persecuted, or something happens, they're gone. And, or, or you know what? It's sometimes that they'll, they'll hold on to it through the trauma, but once the trauma has settled, they're gone. They'll, they'll hang in there when, God, get me through this. God, get me through this. God, get me through this. Well, they get through it, and then they have no more use for God. This is, this is temporary faith. This is the kind of faith that Jesus does not believe in. 
temporary faith. And then you go on down to verse 22, you see a distracted faith, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is another type of soil. This is another heart condition. This is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, it becomes unfruitful. The profession of faith gets suffocated. That's what this verse is saying. And so that's a distracted faith. It gets distracted by the cares of the world, the things of the world. And then, There's the good soil, verse 23. There's only one soil in this illustration, this parable, that's any good. (laughs) It's the good soil. The man who hears the word, understands it, bears fruit, brings forth fruit, hundredfold, 60 and 30. Uh, That verse just tells me all of us are going to be fruitful at different levels. But that's the believer. That's the heart condition of the belie- true believer, verse 23. And then there's one more, and I'll do this, stop with this one. Verse, uh, go to Matthew 3. Matthew 3. Matthew chapter 3, this is uh, your heritage or your family, family faith. Verse 5, then Jerusalem was going out to him. This is verse 5 of Matthew 3 about John the Baptist. Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee the wrath of God to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, He cuts through the facade of their faith. Your faith is not real. You don't bear fruit. Verse 9, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, and this is my point, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. See, I've been born a certain background. I've been born into a family that helped start this church. I've been born into a family that always went to church. That was my heritage. I grew up a Christian. I've always been a Christian Uh, That was my influence, that was my training, that was my upbringing, all of those things. And he says, no, that does not make you right with God. It's not the family plan. No. Enter by the narrow gate. You all would not fit in there together. It's you alone through the narrow gate. All of these I just mentioned fall under John chapter 2. All of these fall under John chapter 2. The, the, the kind of belief that Christ does not entrust himself to. And I just say in the remaining two minutes that true faith is the, is the product of regeneration. Let me just say that. It's, it's not about just your words. It's not about a decision you make. You don't sit here and rely on something that happened at camp 40 years ago. Don't trust in a baptism. Those are great things, but I'm just saying those things don't save you. Young people don't think just because you had a wonderful time at camp or some camp somewhere and that, you're, that, that makes you, don't depend on that experience. It's Christ alone. It's trusting in Christ alone and nothing else to take you to God, to take care of your sin problem, to remove your sin, 
He not only removes your sin and forgives your sin, he imputes righteousness to you. Listen, I need Christ to forgive my sins every single day. If it wasn't enough that he just forgave my past ones, that's great, but God, I need you today because I keep sinning. I need you today. I need you to impute righteousness to me. I need righteousness. Impute that to me. That's what he does in salvation. It's, the, it's, the, it's a new birth. And that's what's setting us up for the next section here. He's going to encounter Nicodemus in chapter 3. You must be born again. You're going to see that next week. It's a product of regeneration where he comes in and changes you, gives you a willingness to follow him, a desire to follow him, desire to, uh, to remain, not temporary, not temporary. It's always, it's, it's always bad when people say, try Jesus. Well, the flesh likes to try everything. That's not what this message is about. Try Jesus. What is that? He might work for you. That didn't, this might. No, that's just very self-centered, self-focused. That's just very much uh, feeding your flesh. The gospel is not about feeding your flesh. The gospel is about crucifying your flesh and mine. Telling me I cannot do it. I can do nothing to make myself right with God. Only trusting in him can I do that. He did it all. And I rest in what he has done. Folks, you just need to look at your own heart this morning. That's what this is about. All of us do. All of us need to, 2 Corinthians says, examine ourselves. See whether we're in the faith or not. Don't sit here your whole life and just nod and go along with everything. And it's not really real. That'd be sad to me i i you know what i've been in people's homes uh toward the end of their life pleading with them to believe but they went to church their whole life but they would tell me they don't believe they don't know they're going to heaven that's sad and that's scary because hell is a long time it's eternal it's eternal Father, thank you for our time this morning. This is a solemn message, Lord. It's, it's a hard message, but it's, a, it's, it's truth. It's what the gospel is. We want to make much of Christ. It points us to our great need for him. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone in this room this morning that, that does not know him, does not know you, that you would convict that heart, that your spirit would work in that heart, and that you would draw them to salvation and open their eyes that they might see and treasure Christ. God, we praise you and thank you for this time today in Jesus' name. Amen.